This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. When your space has the long-lasting, noticeable scent of Airwick Vibrant Scented Oils, you'll want to invite everyone over. From book club to the fantasy league, even the in-laws. It smells... Amazing. Airwick Vibrant Scented Oils are infused with two times more natural essential oils versus regular Airwick Scented Oils for our most authentic, nature-inspired fragrance experience. Hmm. Transform your space with scents like white sage and mahogany or lavender and water lily. Now that's a breath of fresh Airwick. Today's episode is brought to you by Focus On. It's a brand new podcast by... Focus features. I love Focus features. All their movies. Uh, I feel like whenever I see that logo, I know I'm in for a good time. Uh, Focus On takes a deeper look at the stories behind the latest Focus feature films. Oh, that's kind of cool. From the history behind the trial of Mary, Queen of Scots, to the trajectory of the Equal Rights Amendment, you can listen now on Apple Podcasts. Amy, will you be listening to Focus On? Absolutely, I will be. That sounds fascinating. I am down. All right, Focus On wherever you listen to podcasts, but specifically on Apple Podcasts. Here's another great podcast recommendation. It is called The Angel of Vine. It is a new crime podcast. Crime podcasts are great, but what this is, is it's an audio drama about a journalist who uncovers the tapes of a 1950s private eye who cracked the greatest murder mystery Hollywood has ever known and didn't tell a soul. I love this. It's a great mix of Hollywood and murder and mystery and everything. And the cast includes like Joe Manganiello, Alfred Molina, who we love, Austin Zimmer. Love this. It's amazing. And you know what? If you want to listen to Angel Levine, as you should, you can listen to every episode ad-free, plus bonus content, exclusively on Stitcher Premium. So for a free month of Stitcher Premium, go to stitcherpremium.com slash angel and use promo code UNSPOOLED and get your murder on. The year is 1992, and the Western is dead. Belatedly. The movie? Unforgiven. And welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear. And this is the podcast where we watch one film from the AFI's 100 Greatest Films list, 2007 edition, to see if they really are as good as people say, do they hold up, and how they influence the films we watch now. This week, we'll be talking about the Clint Eastwood classic Unforgiven. But before we get into that, let's look back to last week's episode, which ties very closely to this week's episode, which of course is The Searchers. You know, Paul, I'll say we got um, a lot of comments that I think were totally fair that said, did you guys really give a definitive answer on whether or not you felt like The Searchers belonged on the list? And you're right. When I really listened and think about it, I didn't. And I've been kind of wrestling with that all week, thinking like, why was that? 
And I realized I took a long, hard look at myself and I thought, you know, this is a film that I had such a hard time admitting I don't like this time. And I don't know why I had such a hard time admitting it. I mean, part of why we're doing this show is to look at the list, question the list, pull apart the list. And for some reason, The Searchers was one that kind of hit this bruise on me where I was worried if I said I didn't like it. I was wrong. And usually I don't feel that that insecure about my opinion. I don't know why The Searchers makes me feel so insecure. Well, you know what? It's funny. Uh, Eyeliner Girl had written to us and said, you know, you didn't really give a definitive answer. Does it belong on the AFI list? And I was going to write her back and, and felt like, oh, I'm wrestling with it too because it's visually representative of Westerns. But I don't know if I'd ever go back and watch it. And I think thinking about it. And knowing that like Martin Scorsese and, and Steven Spielberg think it's the best, like, you feel like, well, what did I miss? Well, okay. Well, as a thought experiment, let's do this. What if we both at the same time just says, say, no, it doesn't. And then see how we feel. <laughs> All right. Ready? Three, yeah. two, one. No, no it, it doesn't. doesn't. You know what? I feel really good. I feel great. I've fired that, actually. <laughs> you know, let's put Stagecoach back on. Have John Ford up there. And I could call peace with that. I am a 100% down. I didn't even see Stagecoach, but I believe <laughs> uh, I believe your belief in it. Um, but yeah, I, I think we're, we're saying we don't believe it on the list. Yeah, I mean, Catherine Anne Marie wrote, and she said, you know, there's some beautiful shots and excellent framing. The color palette was gorgeous, but it was awful. It's the mythology of white American supremacy bordering on propaganda. And... Maybe this helps clarify our complicated feelings about it a little bit, which is, yes, this film is really important. So arguably in the history of American cinema is Birth of a Nation, the very first blockbuster. And the AFI was okay kicking that off the list. Right. I mean, they without caring about the historical record, it, maybe that's a precedent that we can kind of sleep on. I'm all on board with that. You know, a lot of people were also asking us, like, you know, what Westerns should be on this list? And we're going to be talking about a very influential one in today's episode. But, you know, I'd like to even throw up, like, I think Tombstone is a go-to Western for me. I don't know if it's one of the best films of all time, but it's one of my favorite Westerns. I know people also talked about uh, Dead Man, right, which is a Johnny Depp, Jim Jarmusch Western. Is maybe yeah, being that's one a real of, art house one. Yeah. That's a real art house pick. Well, I also think that The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance is one that I really want to get into because that one comes up a lot. Uh, people talk about it as much as they talk about your beloved stagecoach. Absolutely. And Rio Bravo. Lots of people would love to see Rio Bravo here instead. You know, so, although I wonder, is there a quota of how many Westerns we want? There's a lot of Westerns. How many Westerns do we need? Do we need Westerns because this is an American list and the Western is the most American form, I would argue? Could you put Blazing Saddles on this list? I would, oh my God, I would love to have Blazing yeah. Saddles on this list. I mean, it does the justice of kind of poking fun at the traditional archetypes of the Western, but also uh, telling a traditional Western film as well. Okay, Paul, stick out your hand. Let's do a handshake on get the searches off the list, get Blazing Saddles on. Ready? I'm into that. Yeah. All right, here we go. That's a good, we agree. Not an audible handshake, but it's true. (laughs) Handshakes are not normally the most audible. (laughs) High fives, definitely. Um, And then, Amy, before we get into Unforgiven, I want to ask you a question. This is from Mike79P. And he writes, I'm starting to think that Pauline Kael was a bad critic. Here's a few movies she gave bad reviews to. Vertigo, Raiders of the Lost Ark, 2001, Stand By Me, Superman the Movie, Blade Runner, Raging Bull, Casablanca, and A Clockwork Orange. It's a lot of classic American films. I know you love Pauline Kael. I love reading her writing. Discuss. Well, Mike 79P might think I'm a bad critic, too, because I don't like some of the movies on that list. Okay. All right. All right. (laughs) I do love some, though. Superman the movie is great. But maybe the idea is that you can be a good critic, but you don't have to 
love everything that everyone else loves. I think, you know, what I like in your writing and what I've even enjoyed in Pauline Kael's writing is she makes really interesting points. And a lot of the times it's just not a slam against the film. It She's talking about things that work and things that don't work. And, you know, it's the way that she viewed this thing. It's true. I mean, Pauline Kael definitely never saw criticism as public service, as don't go waste your money in buying a ticket to this, which honestly I feel the same way about too. I would love for people to see any movie that I like write about, even if I'm trashing it, because then we can talk about it. Right. So she's not saying don't waste your money or kill that movie or boycott that movie. She's saying, let's have a conversation. She's starting a conversation. And now I want to start one more conversation with you. Last week we asked, who would you rather have in your posse? We watched a John Wayne movie last week. We watched a Clint Eastwood movie this week. Amy, I want you to think about that. I know my answer. But now let's hear what our listeners thought about who they wanted in their posse. The leader of my posse would be Clint Eastwood. Um, I feel that he just has that quiet, steely demeanor uh, that would help get the job done. I would have to go with Clint Eastwood. Seems like he's still kicking ass, sort of, even if he's on his way out. The leader of my posse has to be Clint Eastwood because he'll probably bring invisible Barack Obama with him and we can all have an interesting conversation. If you pay Clint and didn't betray him, he would follow you into hell. Whereas John Wayne, I think I think he, his personality just seemed a little too erratic and he just seemed like he was going to be doing things his way. I would definitely have to choose John Wayne to lead up my posse because uh, it's a Clint Eastwood movie. Clint Eastwood's probably the only one getting out alive. And I would probably end up dying in a two-shot very violently, and I don't have to worry about that in a John Wayne film. Yes, I would choose uh, John Wayne for the leader of my posse because I think he would be more focused and reliable, whereas I think Clint Eastwood would be off trying to sleep with somebody. Clint. Some good answers there, Amy. Who do you want in your posse? I'm picking Gene Wilder. <laughs> Can I do that? <laughs> I want Gene Wilder. You my broke posse. it. I would want Cleavon Little. <laughs> uh, no. Um, if I had to pick between John Wayne and Clint Eastwood, I think I'm picking Clint Eastwood. I think as a cowboy, he is much more menacing. I would not want to be on the other side of a gun from Clint Eastwood. I, I just feel like never underestimate him, even as we're going to find out today, as William Money, the guy still got the goods even though he was a little bit older than some of the younger cowboys in this film. The year is 1992. Bill Clinton becomes the president. The Washington Redskins win the Super Bowl. The top song is I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston. The first nicotine patch is introduced to help stop smoking. And DNA fingerprinting is invented. It's the last year that both the Winter and Summer Olympic Games shared the same year. And the spinner hubcap was invented by James J.D. Gregg of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Top heart throbs of the day. Marky Mark Wahlberg, and Fabio. And the big movies included Aladdin, Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, Batman Returns, and Unforgiven. All right, Unforgiven. We got Clint Eastwood as William Will Money. I really mm. like that the credits specialize that you can call William Will. Uh, you got Gene Hackman as Little Bill Daggett. You got Morgan Freeman as Ned Logan. You got Richard Harris, father of Jared Harris, the villain in today's movies, as English Bob. You got James Wolvert as the Schofield Kid, Francis Fisher as Strawberry Alice, and a person very dear to my heart, Anthony James as Skinny Dubois, who we just saw as the evil diner clerk 
in In the Heat of the Night. And what? Then also in the Poison video, he is back in this movie. You know what's so funny? When I first saw him on screen, I was like, is he doing a Clint Eastwood impression? Because the first time you see him, it's I hear the cock of the gun. He's like, all right, put it down. I was like, oh. And I was like, he looks just like that guy. I did not realize it's that guy yeah. 30 years later. Fun fact. Wow. Now that we have done Heat of the Night and then also Unforgiven, those are apparently his first movie and his last movie. We just saw the entire arc of Anthony James's career. Not bad. And I actually think he's great in this film. He kind of, uh, it's an interesting character that he makes memorable. It is directed by and starring Clint Eastwood. It is a Western, his familiar genre, and a genre that he more or less hung up his spurs from after this film. Uh, in Unforgiven, he plays an assassin who's retired. His name is Will Money. He's dragged back into action by the promise of $1,000 that he's going to split three ways between his buddy Morgan Freeman and a younger kind of wild man, Schofield kid. All he has to do is kill these two guys who cut up a prostitute because she laughed at his penis for being too small. It is a film about wrestling with violence, about the myth of violence in the West, where Clint Eastwood mutters a lot about how uh, he regrets the violence of his youth. Yes. And Amy, I'm so excited. We're talking about this movie this week, a week after we talked about The Searchers. I know that there was a little bit of a feeling of like, oh, two Westerns in a row. But in many ways, these films parallel each other. I think they're showing a different side of the West. And I think this movie is a lot more successful as a film and as making a statement about the West. Do they parallel like two stirrups on a saddle Ooh. driving the genre forward? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think it's really interesting to be talking about The Searchers because it feels sort of like a cap of so many things we've been talking about. We've got Gene Hackman again as a gunslinger, yes. which it's so, I mean, here he is playing um, the local sheriff. Uh, and it, and I, th I find it so ironic that, like, we have now seen Gene Hackman three times as a dude with a gun when all Gene Hackman does between making these films is talk about how he doesn't want to be the dude with a gun. I mean, he literally had to be coerced into this film. Like, he did not want to do it. He was so nervous about the violence in it. It's interesting. I really want to understand Gene Hackman a little bit more. There's not many interviews with him. He's a hard guy to kind of pin down. Yeah, Gene Hackman is like, what if every time you left the house to go grocery shopping in your bathrobe, you got photographed? And those are like the only three photographs of you in existence. And he's like, God damn it. This is not who I am. <laughs> it's like the Britney Spears eating Cheetos of but, gunslinging people in movies. But I will say his character's in each of those films that we've talked about are extremely different. And in this film, he in many ways is the antagonist. He's the villain. But in a traditional Western, he'd kind of be the hero. Yeah, I kind of like him best, I, to be honest. I like him a lot in the film, I mean, but he's a violent, vindictive guy. I mean, his whole point of view in the film is to create order, I will rule with fear. I mean, you know, he doesn't want guns in this town except for him. And then when someone comes to this town to collect this reward for, uh, you know, this prostitute who had gotten her face cut, he beats this man in a way that's so aggressively bloody uh, and then does it again to Morgan Freeman. Like you see this very dark side of him. But there's a version, like I said, of this story where if you saw it from his point of view, you'd be like, yeah, the sheriff does, you know, doesn't take no shit and he keeps his talent together. Well, I find him very orderly because his whole dream is just for everybody to chill the hell out so that he can hang out at his house and drink coffee on the porch. That is literally all he wants. What he's instituting is really no different than like no shirt, no shoes, no service. It's just if you bring your gun to town, he's going to beat you up. 
And I, in a way, I it's feel like very dictatorish, Amy. It is, but I think he's doing it for the greater good. If these people would stop showing up, it, granted, I mean, I find I find this is true. I don't think this has always been his policy. Right. I think it's been his policy once he figured out that all of these people want to come and shoot up his town, and he was like, "Well, that can't happen." So it's a temporary measure he put in. It's it is literally martial law. Yes. So he's saying, like, look, to create a sense of safety, I am dictating what is safe. Would I like to live in that town? Probably, to a certain extent. I think it brings up what the interesting part of this movie is about how one rules with violence. Is his type of violence better than the type of violence that he despises? And I mean, my God, at the risk of like being the person who defends the law and order candidate, which yeah. like I find a little horrific even as I'm doing it. I'm surprised at it. I would say from Gene Hackman's point of view, the two people he beats up, beats up. Are, um, oh, that's okay. Beating okay. up is okay. <laughs> well, he beats up <laughs> a, he beats up a a murderer that he knows is a murderer who like killed a dude like you know who was like lying on the floor with his hand blown off. He kills a dude that he knows is bad who's come to his town to start trouble. Okay. Basically, Gary Cooper. Okay. And then the other guy he kills is Morgan Freeman. After Morgan Freeman is part of an assassination attempt that kills someone, he doesn't just like kill him randomly. You know, he like, he's well, like, this, he, you he, did something. He tortures him for information okay, and then so. kills him. And technically, Morgan Freeman didn't kill that person in his town. He did shoot him, though. In his town? Well, outside of his town. Oh, are you, you're, you're drawing the line on where he shot him, not absolutely, that he shot him? Absolutely, yes. Oh you can't God. have a gun in <laughs> in the town, but you can have a gun outside of the town. Whatever happens outside, those are two Whatever people. Whatever happens outside Vegas stays outside Vegas? I well, don't think that's how it works. But, I mean, here's a guy who is, uh, you know, I mean, he's a criminal who's out there, and another criminal comes across him, and he kills him. For money. But that has nothing to do with his town. Doesn't it? I mean, okay, okay. I'm not saying that you're wrong. I'm just saying that his will to create order, I think, goes a little bit further than he needs to. Like, he could have put both those people in jail. No, he brutalizes one and he kills another to prove a point. And it's sort of like his point is, I'm going to... Do ultra violence on you instead of penalizing you the way that the law should be. I agree, but here's another reading. Okay. What if this whole movie is him attempting to make up for the mistake that Gene Hackman does at the very beginning when he doesn't become the violence candidate? Because what do we first see of, of Gene Hackman? He's like, I should whip these guys. Actually, I should maybe kill them for like slicing up this woman. But you know what? We're just going to do this the peaceful way. Give me horses. And then because of that, all of this like hellfire breaks loose when the women are like, that is not nearly enough punishment. So then he overcorrects. Maybe he didn't want to be this guy. I mean, um, granted, he should have absolutely like punished them, by the way, besides horses. But, but yes. I mean, it comes from this idea of being a dictator. He's ruling by his own laws. And he, you know, he's saying, well, no, I'm going to make it about horses. I'm not going to make it about killing those people because he didn't believe that those men deserved a criminal punishment because they were just prostitutes, right? But these prostitutes are saying, no, this is a woman who has been attacked. She deserves revenge. She deserves justice. So it's like the whole movie is kind of like whose justice is right. And I would argue that Gene Hackman does like violence. I mean, the way that he speaks to Saul Rubinek, who I'm a big fan of, the biographer who's writing like the sensational pulpy Western uh, 
novels with uh, English Bob. When, the Duck of Death. Oh, The Duck of Death. I mean, <laughs> and by the way, talking about humor and going back to The Searchers, here's a great example of humor in this film, really well done, you know, illuminates a character. I don't know. I, I think I, I like the jokes in this movie. Um, yeah, for people who haven't watched this in a minute, you know, The Duck of Death is that this biographer, W.W. Beauchamp, he's writing a book about English Bob and he wants to call it The Duke of Death. And at first, when Gene Hackman calls it The Duck of Death, yeah. you're like, oh, he's a literate little deer. But then he just keeps calling it duck and his insistence on making him a duck, I find hilarious. I, <laughs> but um, I think that there's a part of Gene Hackman that comes alive when he's telling these stories, you know, because he's telling these stories about English Bob. And he's like, that's actually not what happened. This is what happened. And he talks about, you know, he likes to mythologize himself as much as the duck of death, uh, you know, is doing. They're just doing it differently. And I think this is what's so interesting about this movie. It is a commentary on what the West is. And, you know, we watch all these movies where, you know, traditionally, you know, John Wayne was the hero, but he's doing bad things. He's meeting out justice, but because we're viewing it through his lens, he's the good guy. And I think you see that really beautifully executed with the Schofield kid when he has his whole monologue after he finally kills someone, you know, he's trying to be this cowboy and then realizes like the toll that that actually takes because the murder in this film is not glorified. I mean, at the end when Clint Eastwood really goes all out uh, it's impressive, but it's, it's, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, real. Well, yeah, we were talking about last week, how strange it was that this is that the searchers is a movie where John Wayne shoots three people in the back, which is like, so against Western code. Yeah. I mean, in a way, yeah, we've seen this progression, like high noon, classic showdown, middle of town, fastest draw rules, no rules in the searchers and here totally no rules. And like, you know, I feel like the commentary with John Wayne shooting people in the back was like, did what he had to do. So it goes here. I think the commentary is more like there is no glory in being a murderer ever. And like the way that people murder is going to be sad and pitiful. They're not going to feel good about it. And even when uh, Gene Hackman tells stories about other murders he's witnessed, there's no glory in any of this. They're like taking away any sense of like, okay, good job. Punch on the shoulder, man. Nice job. Except for that ending death, which is why I think that ending death is really strange. Wait, but no, I think that ending death kind of encapsulates exactly what you're saying. Like when Gene Hackman is on the ground and he's like, I don't deserve to die this way. And I think it's viewed as like a Clint Eastwood quip, you know, uh, where he goes, deserves got nothing to do with it. There are no bad guys and good guys. They're just human beings and, and killing one person doesn't make it better. And I feel like, you know, it is all about how your conscience guides you. Like I think Gene Hackman, you know, little Bill feels very, good about himself because he's using violence in his mind correctly. And I think, you know, you have Clint Eastwood who used violence in the past in a way that he's embarrassed and ashamed of. So he carries that weight. I think Morgan Freeman's character is someone who used violence to meet an end. Like, all right, it got him his job, but that's not something that defines him. He goes and lives his way. And you have a young kid, the Schofield kid is like, I want violence to to define me. I want it to be this thing. And then, you know, English Bob who is also using it in that same way as a Schofield kid, like for notoriety and success and and to be something. So it's interesting, like your conscience kind of dictates it, but at the end of the day, you're still taking a life. And is, is there any glory in that? Yeah, it's weird. I mean, because this one little camera trick happens right before that final shootout where Clint Eastwood rides into the bar to, to kill Gene Hackman and to kill everybody else in the bar, mm-hmm. which is 
the camera suddenly goes to his point of view. You know, there's a little kind of shift where all of a sudden we're inside him as he's on horseback riding into it. And I feel like that's a little bit of the camera of Clint Eastwood nudging us and being like, it's okay to identify with this guy right Mm. now. Like he's been not wanting to be this guy. But in the moment that Clint Eastwood in this film becomes the cowboy that he's always said he's going to be, Mm -hmm. that's when the camera's like, and now you're with him. It kind of makes you identify. Well, I mean, this is Clint Eastwood's movie, without a doubt. I mean, the title is, you know, representative of him. And uh, and I think we're following his journey. Like, here's a guy who, you know, very much like Michael Corleone and the best Godfather, Godfather 3, every time he's out, they keep on pulling him back in. Uh, they, <laughs> You know, he's pulled in. His farm is failing. He's like, I can make $1,000, split three ways. That will save this little farm that he has. And you're watching this man who doesn't want to be doing this, do it. And I think at the end, when the camera does it, it's like, all right, you want to see me be that guy? Here, I'll be that guy. The whole movie, he's kind of a little bit against it. Like, even when he tells the Schofield, kill, go, yeah, go, kill him, do it. Like, he he's not in it for violence or greed, but then there's that moment where it switches. It's, you know, I think shown really well where he goes and has has a drink like you know the whole movie he doesn't want to drink he's not going to have a drink that's the old him and he's like all right fuck it let's go you want to see me i told you who i am it's it's the incredible hulk kind of moment it's like yeah yeah this is me and we don't really live with him after that moment it's like we don't we see him in the first shot which is the last shot you know, uh, this house that's now abandoned. We understand that he may have moved to San Francisco and become a businessman. A who's businessman. even more evil. <laughs> we don't see the repercussions that that has. But for that one night, he went off the wagon. Yeah, we hear the repercussions. And Gene Hackman is like, I'll see you in hell. And he's like, well, yeah, yeah, that's I'm, I'm committing to that now. Like, I'm yeah. not going to be redeemed. But don't you think it's a little weird that in his arc, he's like, oh, man, I can't shoot a gun. Oh, I'm really bad at this, guys. And there's almost that like comedy beat, the like Indiana yeah. Jones one, where he's like, "Okay, if I can't do it with a pistol, I got a shotgun." And well, he can't get on a horse, and he's yeah. just bad at aiming, and he's bad at the whole thing. And you're sort of like, "Oh, the little plucky underdog!" Like he can't get his killing mojo back. But then suddenly at the end, he's like a terrific shot who mows down five people in this film where death has been hard to accomplish for everybody, right? Messy and undignified. Suddenly, when the chips are down, he's like. All right, I got this. It's like this movie is saying everybody is bad at murdering, except for Clint when he really puts his heart to it. God bless him. (laughs) Uh, I don't disagree with you. I mean, it is definitely the most glamorous shootout. And it is an old-fashioned, like, people flying over tables. And where you have a film where I think it's actually really beautifully done. The town feels real to me. It doesn't feel overpopulated, which I think a lot of Westerns feel very bustling. Hi, you know? I'm the marm. Yeah, and it's yeah. like, you know, the streets are so crowded and kids are, you know, doing those kind of, uh, those wheels with a stick and, you know. Uh, you know, you were making this motion with your hand and I thought you were going to say double dutch. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but the town here felt like it's the right amount of people, even when they're getting the posse together at one point, it's no no more than like ten or twelve guys, you know. It 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 feels right, and and in that scene, it feels the most Hollywood. I I do agree with that. Um, maybe because he's that good, you know. Maybe he is the legend that is real. And another scene I really want to talk about is that prison scene where Gene Hackman is whipping Morgan Freeman. It's such an intense scene, and I think it shows the complexity of this character because he can be brutal 
at times, but I think also views himself as a pacifist. I mean, I, that scene, I think, is why, like, Hackman wanted to do the film. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, he was like, oh, don't make me hold a gun. But what really changed his mind was that, you know, this movie comes out right after, you know, the Rodney King beating. And he was thinking, if I do this film, if I play this officer of the law who beats up Morgan Freeman, this is me, you know, being this figurehead, being like Daryl Gates, you know, in charge of of people getting abused under my watch. It's weird because like Clint, he sort of refers to him really casually as like the villain. Right. And signing on for it that way definitely feels like a villain move as well. But what's, you know what's kind of strange about that scene too? It is like, it's a real little thing that kind of goes by is that you will learn that Morgan Freeman actually did wind up ratting on Clint Eastwood, right. which almost never happens in one of these movies. It's like, no, he died, but he didn't write you right. out. But here they're sort of like, he did write you out. He gave you all of the, everything about you. Well, this film actually deconstructs the traditional Western. We talked about that a little bit last week. Is The Searchers doing it? I think that this movie does. It's like, no, you know what? Hey, ratted him out. Things don't end great. The Schofield kid is nothing but a lie. You know, there is no grand love in this movie you know there's like that really great scene between Clint Eastwood and Delilah but it's not anything more than what you would potentially see in real life I I think that this movie is deconstructing a western but also paying off on all the beats that you want to see in a western I mean that okay that scene between him and Delilah is kind of loony can we really talk about it yeah sure okay listen let me say right up front I am not saying that Clint Eastwood in this movie is an incel. And I'm like, I'm I'm not saying it. I know I've okay. been like really on this incel trip. I think my language has been a little clumsy because what I'm really just sort of struck upside down with is the fact that all of these films that we've been watching in a row have a scene where the main character says he just isn't getting any. Right. And I just, it's not technically incel behavior, but Unforgiven also has this twice. Well, he says he doesn't miss sex. Yeah. He says he doesn't miss it. But like, it's weird that we keep having to have these characters be like, yeah. I'm totally alone. And I, I, it but don't you think, I mean, it, like, and I know you're not saying he's an incel, but I do believe that the, the romantic part of him is that he is still, you know, his love was his wife who believed in him and saw the good in him. His yeah. Wife. I, I mean, if you do the math on his wife's tombstone, I mean, she's very young. By I am the, way. the type of person who will do this. Yeah. Um, he fell in love with his wife when she was 21. He was 51. I'm like, okay. And in the intro, um, in the scroll, it makes yeah. a point of just saying the one definition of his wife that we get is that she's calmly. So it's like Eastwood being like, yeah, I got a hot wife. Okay. Let me, you know what? I'm going to back up even further. I'm like backing up and backing up. Okay. I did just see The Mule. Okay. The new Clint Eastwood movie. Yes. Where, you know, it's present day. So he must be, he's 88. Uh, and the movie gives him not one, but two threesomes. He's like playing himself, 88, old man, driving trucks full of drugs back and forth across the country. And there's just these scenes where like you see him leaving his motel with two babes who are so happy. And then another scene where he gets hit on at a party. And they're like watching that and then rewatching Unforgiven. It's so strange to me that Clint Eastwood keeps making these movies where he's like, I'm an old guy who, you know, I turn down lots of love. I get offered lots of love, you know. Like, mm. what is supposed to be the effect on us, the audience, to have all of these scenes where all of these dudes keep saying that they don't have a woman? Like, what is that? Is it to make them seem more vulnerable? Is it like the most vulnerable thing you can be as a man is to admit that you don't get laid a lot? Is it that we think, oh, he must be kind of a nice guy and he hasn't met the right girl. Maybe I could save him. Like, is it? Is, does it say, speak to some sort of like unattachment from the world so it's okay if he dies like there is some reason why they're all here and i find it super weird i mean i would argue that a lot of films show people at an imperfect point in their life and if you go to you know 
comedies. Like, uh, not, well, rom-coms definitely, but even like if you were to go to your traditional comedy films, you know, you always find this lovable loser who then falls in love with, you know, most likely if it's an 80s or 90s film, like a super hot girl or finds out the super hot girl is not as cool as the best friend, you know. But that I, never even gets redeemed in these movies. It doesn't, I, it doesn't even ever come up no, again. And but like it's this, an interesting like thing. The night. But it's an interesting thing because I think, you know, we've talked a lot about like where there is misogyny in these films. But then we're also talking about this idea that these men aren't complete without a woman, too. I mean, because that's what we're showing. We're showing, like, oh, they they need this other thing in their life. You ever go into town? On occasion? Sell a hog, pick up supplies. No, no, I mean, <clears throat> I mean, get yourself a woman or something. No. No, I never go into town for that. A man like me? Only one a man like me could get is one he'd have to pay for it. I ain't right buying flesh. Claudia, rest her soul, would never want me doing something like that. Me being a father-in-law. So, you, you just use your hand? I can't think of that many Westerns that reference masturbation like that. Bravo, <laughs> Morgan Freeman. But, I mean, it's kind of a funny moment, isn't it? I mean, that's like a, you know, he's a, like... Like, I feel like these are two cowboys out on the plains talking about sex, which is something you never see in a traditional Western. Like, you know, like you don't like you see these men that are like, I love my horse. And I do like, you know, John Wayne's not talking about, you know, jerking off by showing a scene like this. It's it's kind of groundbreaking in in its simplicity. It's like, yeah, what would these two guys be talking? They're on this horse for, for forever. What are they talking about? Yeah, do you get laid? How do you get, like, well, what happens? Like, what's the deal? Like, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I think there's something very okay. real about that. I mean, I guess, like, yeah, I guess this movie does posit that when men are alone, they're going to talk about murder or masturbation. All right, then let's <laughs> listen to him. Um, Paul Shear, champion for masturbation talk in cinema. It's <laughs> my other podcast. It's a Patreon. You can uh, subscribe. You can listen to me talk about all the great films that talk about masturbation. <laughs> Fast Times, first episode. All right, well, then let's turn. All let's right. listen to him turning down Delilah, the woman who's gotten her face scarred. She's asked him if he wants a freebie. Um, this is the way he turns it out. What I want you guys to listen to is how the movie makes a point of flattering Eastwood by her being so disappointed that she can't have sex with him. And then how the scene continues, and it gives us this, like, little sad Frisian music when he mentions his wife, which I did roll my eyes a bit. Would you like a free one? No, I... I guess not. I, uh... I didn't mean with me. I meant, uh... Allison Silky would be happy to give you a free one if you wanted one. That, that's... that's all I meant. Oh, I didn't mean I... I didn't want a free one on account of you being cut up and all. And what I said the other day about you looking like me, that ain't true. You ain't ugly like me. It's just that we both have got scars. But you're a beautiful woman, and if I was to want a, a free one, I'd want it with you, I guess, more than the mother, too. Just that I, I can't on account of my wife. Okay, I mean, listen, Here, this is all I'm saying. This is all I'm okay. saying. We could have lived this whole movie without ever having to think about Clint Eastwood's boner, and he just keeps kind of bringing it up. And it's a thing he does in so many of his movies where he becomes this, like, chimera, even within individual scenes. Every scene he's like, 
I'm an old guy. Oh, but I could get some. I just find it fascinating. It's like he's proven something. That scene is a bizarre scene in the film because you don't really need it. If you were to cut any scene in the film, this film is not made better by this scene. It's not made worse by this scene. It's just sort of like an extra brush stroke, you know, um, because there's no. (laughs) I'm sorry you said stroke. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to keep it down, but given everything. No, I love it. I think what they're trying to show in a certain respect is he is a just man. Even when present, like if he was lying to Morgan Freeman, we're seeing it here where he wouldn't have to lie. He he loves his wife. He doesn't drink. He's really trying to change this point in time. And so that's why I buy that he can't shoot the gun anymore. He can shoot the shotgun because he's a sort of like, you know what? I left it behind. Now I'm this, I'm this other, this other, you know, he's reinvented himself. By the way, I just want to give a shout out to this actress uh, who I really like, Anna Levine. Uh, who plays Delilah, and also Saul Rubinek, who plays the biographer, uh, both in uh, True Romance. Uh, so when I got to see them in this movie together, too, I was very excited. I love True Romance, and uh, it was a great uh, to see them back at it together. I do want to flag, because I think it's interesting that like this scene and the one right before it, where she's also nursemaiding him, yeah. are really the only times we see her character talk. Mm. Which you know seems almost like a choice at the beginning, because this is a film about all these women putting this revenge plan into motion on her behalf. And they don't let her speak about it. Right. You know, you get these like cutaways where when, you know, one of the younger guys, the one of the younger people who's marked for death gives her his nicest horse and you cut to her and you can't tell from her face if she's like actually maybe kind of fine with that at right. peace with the horse before Francis Farmer starts throwing the horse dung at him. And so it is interesting that this is a movie that never lets her speak about how she would want to resolve this. Except for mm. when she offers him a free one, I'm like, okay, that's where she that's where she gets to talk. But I I find I think I'd be more fascinated by her if she never ever spoke. You could see a version of this movie from the prostitute's perspective, which would be really interesting. I think that that's one of the things I really love about this film is you could really turn the camera on any of these main characters, and it can become their movie entirely. And I think the reason why. It's because the script is so well written. It's a it's a script that I think really services all the characters for the most part. And I I don't disagree with you in regards to Delilah's character right now. But I wanted to play you a clip that Francis Fisher talks about the script. It's the only script I've ever worked on that had its original white pages because there's usually always rewrites and you get the pink and the gold and the whatever blah blah blah. This was word for word the original script because David Peoples wrote such a beautifully descriptive piece. If you guys could ever uh, get a hold of that script and just read it, it reads like a novel. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. I just think that that's fascinating. I mean, I've worked in a bunch of different things and I've you are constantly in a sea of revision marks. And this is not an older film. This is a movie that comes out in 1992. This movie was written back in 1975. Francis Ford Coppola was going to make this film for a while, and then Clint Eastwood bought it from him and then sat on it and then eventually made it. Uh, but it didn't even make it to Clint Eastwood at one point because his script reader read it, and she's like, it's garbage, it's trash, and he found it. And A different woman who was also like a story supervisor? Yeah who was also sort of his like girlfriend on the side when he was cheating on his main girlfriend. She actually was like, you should do this. I think it would be amazing for your career. Wow. You know, when she realized like this film is going to be like on track to be actually made and to be a big deal, she asked him if she could get like a finder's fee and a little bit of a screen credit. And he said, no, 
And then, actually, by coincidence, uh, this um, it seems like as though he kind of sicked the studio on her because then the New York Post coincidentally ran a big story about how she was like a floozy on page six. Wow. I just had to drop that in. Hearing that, you know, this movie could have been made by Francis Ford Coppola, it would have been interesting. I think they were chasing John Malkovich for the lead at one point. Um, and Malkovich came out and said, like, oh, my God, that would have been the biggest mistake. I would never have been able to do this character justice. What if you took this movie, though, and you flipped Gene Hackman and Clint Eastwood? Because mm-hmm. I would almost see the depth that Gene Hackman would bring to the Clint Eastwood character. Whereas I think if Clint Eastwood was playing the local sheriff, I would be more convinced he was a villain. You know, I love that casting. I'm just thinking about the film through that lens. Is Clint Eastwood more of a sad figure? Does he look like the world has beat him down more than Gene Hackman? I think there's something that when you look at Gene Hackman, even in this film where he does some pretty awful stuff, you still look at him and kind of you are on his side. Whereas I think... Clint Eastwood's a harder buy sometimes. He's not, you know, just like John Wayne, he's not a man of many words. He doesn't really let you in. Speaking of the script and, you know, the beauty of the script, we should maybe hear a little bit from our first guest. We have David Webb Peoples. He is the screenwriter of Unforgiven. And also he wrote 12 Monkeys. He wrote Blade Runner. He's written a lot and he's here. David, hello. Welcome to Unspooled. So a lot of people talk about this as Clint Eastwood's definitive film. But I think when they say that, they're forgetting that it's based on your script. Like, this is your statement about the West. Like, what inspired you to make this film? I don't know. I had always liked, preferred, I think, the kind of offbeat revisionist Westerns rather than John Wayne Westerns, which isn't to say I didn't like the John Wayne Westerns. I just was pulled toward the revisionist ones. When I was uh, 11, 10 or 11 years old, Henry King's uh, Gunfighter came out. And I remember as a little 10-year-old boy just being knocked out by the gunfighter. It was great. I always remembered that I'd like this film as a 10-year-old, but I didn't think about it much or anything like that. But after Unforgiven came out, uh, the company, I can't remember if it was Fox or who it was, wanted to put out a package of three Westerns. All on this list was The Gunfighter. Okay. And I said, geez, I'll put an interview on there about The Gunfighter if you'll just send me a copy of The Gunfighter. Because <laughs> it was unavailable. You couldn't see it. Oh, wow. And so they sent me this copy, and I was stunned at how much of that I'd carried with me from the time I was 10. It's just an exceptional picture, and Gregory Peck plays a, a you know disillusioned gunfighter who wishes he wasn't a gunfighter. And uh, obviously it influenced me tremendously without me realizing yeah. it. And then uh, what had happened is I tried never to have anybody killed in the screenplays I wrote because Hollywood deaths seemed so unreal to me, Hollywood killing and deaths. And I just thought, well, you can't, it, it, they're just awful and, and, and I'm not going to kill people in an entertainment movie. But then around that time, Taxi Driver came out. And Paul Schrader's picture was stunning and made me realize you could write a movie that was entertaining and have people die in it and not make it a sort of a James Bond or a a melodramatic thing. Well, speaking back about 1976, you know, you wrote this movie 
a way before it was produced and made. And it kind of has this amazing journey in the sense that it was held by uh, Francis Ford Coppola for a little bit, right? And then it yeah. moved over to Clint Eastwood. Did you feel that this movie was maybe never going to get made at a certain point? Or, you know, or did you always have faith that this was going to finally see the light of day? I mean, obviously I was hopeful, but uh, one thing when you're a writer, you have to keep looking at the next great thing you're going to write and forget about everything that's behind you. Right. And so I wasn't thinking too much about it. Uh, I was disappointed when Clint Eastwood bought it. I, I sort of thought it would be his next Western, and then along came uh, Pale Rider. And so I thought, well, maybe he lost interest. So I was feeling a little discouraged. And then uh, Janet, uh, my co-writer and wife, happened to be at Telluride when he was there and she ran into him and asked him, he said, I'm just about to announce it. But, but as I say, I try not to think about all the scripts that aren't being made. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, and your body of work is so amazingly diverse. And I think one of the greatest compliments I ever heard about a script was what Frances Fisher said. She said like that there was no revision marks when they went to go shoot this movie, which means that your vision was fully seen, which is, I think, a very rare thing. You know, they, I think it is absolutely extraordinarily rare. And what's beautiful about it is how much Clint Eastwood embraced it. I mean, I, I think like myself, he was frustrated at first with it and, and tried to make it better. But he said to me that or he said to someone, he said, well, you know, I tried to fix it. I couldn't make it better. I was making it worse. Well, I had exactly the same experience. The thing about it is he understood every scene. He got it. I mean, that's the whole trick with, with when you write something good, you hope that the director gets it. And sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. But in this case, he got every scene, and he... I think he just saw eye to eye with it. Well, you also had the film Hero come out the year, the one with Dustin Hoffman and the plane crash yeah. and getting too much credit for it. And I love that you had these two films that are really, you know, in a world where we hear that Hollywood producers are always pushing for clear heroes and clear villains, you made these two movies about moral ambiguity. Well, the funny thing is, I was hopeful that a script I'd written in 1984 uh, called Soldier was going to come out that year. Because oh, wow. uh, there were some signs of it. And I thought, wow, I'll have written a Western, a comedy, and a sci-fi picture all in the same year. <laughs> uh, I thought, geez, that'd be fun. Uh, but uh, Soldier didn't come out till many years later, uh, um, and so on. Um, moral ambiguity and humor. My writing partner now, the, the two of us, is, that's kind of what we like. Is, is yeah. Moral ambiguity, humor, and some energy. Well, like, I mean, talking about writing with your wife, one thing that you said about your own career before you wrote all your scripts together, uh, when you were talking about Hero, when you were talking about the character of Gina Davis in particular, you said that you felt like you hadn't yet then, like, quote unquote, gotten it about female characters. And I love that you're able to look at your own work with such, like, clarity. I find that so impressive. Well, I think it's actually the number of years that have passed. Uh, uh, I'm a real old guy now, and I can see more clearly than I could <laughs> when I was young and full of beans. I, you know, uh, as I say, all those things I say about Unforgiven now, I wasn't thinking about when I wrote it. I just, it just came out and, and looking back, I can see now where it came from, but I wasn't thinking that way at the time. We were talking before we had you on the, the phone here about Gene Hackman's character. And do you think the way that he runs that town is the right way to run an old West town? 
very much yes, and and I think he was, and I think he became less sympathetic uh, with the fact that Morgan Freeman was a black man and he whipped a black man. And in in our current society, uh, I think most of those old white guys were racist. So I hadn't intended to bring it out. (laughs) Right, right, right. Uh, I saw Gene Hackman as a police officer, which is to say, he was trying to to minimize the violence. He couldn't stop violence, but he tried to minimize it. So I, I didn't see him as a villain, but as a worthy opponent to uh, this wild man, uh, William Money. Uh, I saw him as a guy trying to do his job, imperfectly perhaps, but he was trying to have less killing, right. less violence, as opposed to the alternative. I have to ask while we have you, last week, Paul and I were really wrestling with the searchers, and I'd love to get your take on it. Well, it's, it's ironic. I, I heard about it for years and, and didn't see it, so I saw it way past its time, and I, I didn't really get it. In other words, I, I saw the movie, but I didn't it didn't move me the way it was intended to, and I, I could see why people had liked it, but it, it didn't get to me. I know it's one of Scorsese's favorite films, and everybody raves about it. And it's just one of those things where you either get it or you don't, and I didn't get it. Well, we are so excited we got to talk to you here as we go through this list, and we're such fans of this script, and we hope we get to uh, chat with you again when uh, when we come time for uh, Blade Runner. Well, absolutely. Uh, if you have any more questions about Unforgiven that'll be helpful to you, I'll be happy to respond. Uh, I'm so lucky to have had Clint Eastwood make that movie. <laughs> yeah. You know, the things that would have happened. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can only imagine. It's like one of those rare times where you have somebody just, yeah, just executing your vision. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's great. And you've, you've had that. Well, uh, he made it his vision. I mean, right. that's really, nobody else would have made that movie that way, the way I wrote it. And he made it his way. And he is, he is something else. I mean, he's a lot like yeah. the character's, that you see in his movies, he just walks right down the center of Main Street and <laughs> does what he's doing. I mean, the studio doesn't mess with him, and nobody messes with him, and he knows what he's doing. He's a hell of a storyteller. Have you ever seen Bronco Billy? Oh, yeah. It's one of the best comedies ever, and that character he plays, Bronco Billy, is magical, and the writing in it is just spectacularly good. That always comforted me when, when I knew that Clint Eastwood was going to make this. I thought there's a chance he'll make it as good as Bronco Billy, and he did. <laughs> well, it was such a pleasure talking to you, and, uh, and thanks so much for spending some time. Okay, thank, thank you, you so both, much. And uh, as I say, anytime. Okay? Right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. bye. Hey, everybody, we have to take a brief break in the show to hear a few words from our sponsors, and that sponsor is BlackTux.com. Fellas, can I tell you something? You need to upgrade your style game, okay? But I know it's expensive. You can't go out there and buy a tux, an expensive suit. It's out of the the reasoning why. I'm going to wear it once? No, 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 okay? This is where Black Tux comes in. Black Tux offers the kind of suits and tuxedo styles that normally would be wildly expensive to buy. And like I said, you're only going to wear once. So you rent them online. You can blow it out for your big one-time event. And then return it that's right and here's the best part about it with their free try on service you can try it on see the fit and the quality of your suit months before your event so you're not putting it on just like 45 minutes before going oh no but it's i I said i was a 34 waist but i'm actually a 36 no 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 
You do it all ahead of the game, okay? After you're ordering, your suit will arrive 14 days before your event. It's there. You can feel comfortable in it. You don't have to go pick it up the day of because you're busy, got stuff to do. And if there's anything that's less than perfect, Black Tux will send you a replacement one right away. You are going to look good for this event. They guarantee it. Returns are simple. Just wear it. Turn heads and send it back three days after your event. Shipping is free both ways. Um, It's actually a great way to experience Good clothing. I always say that uh, women have these great services like Rent the Runway, and men often don't have a chance to do it. And I have to wear tux a lot, and you can't really wear tux multiple times on a red carpet. And black tux makes it simple. You can look really good in designer tuxes that actually fit your body. And then here's the thing you will always look good because you're always going to have the latest, newest, coolest thing. So here's the deal, people look at me, look at me in a tux, and then think rental. Uh, anyway, get $20 off your first purchase. Visit blacktux.com and enter the code unspooled. That's A-U-N-S-P-O-O-L-E-D. That's unspooled. That's blacktux.com. Code unspooled for $20 off your purchase. Black Tux, premium rental suits and tuxedos delivered to your door. What's kind of interesting to me is, you know, we talked about this actually last week with the John Wayne episode, is the impossibility of ever pulling apart the John Wayne-ness from the character. Right. And that's definitely, I think, happening here in Unforgiven. You know, the impossibility of pulling out not just Clint Eastwood, the guy who was in three huge westerns in 1967 all at once that, like, made his career after he was on Rawhide forever. Right. He's actually wearing his Rawhide boots in Unforgiven still. He's oh, wow. like, I still got the same boots, y'all. But... You know, also, I feel like there's so much of the Eastwood from Dirty Harry in here. And then there's like the kind of Sylvester Stallone arc of a guy who's like been kicked around Hollywood for a long time, failed, finally making this good, good, good movie like when Stone had Creed. And everybody wanted to be like, oh, you're back and like dying to give him this acclaim. Right. So first, we should talk about like where Clint Eastwood was when Unforgiving came out and why I think it got such a huge reception. He actually had recently done a movie that we talked about here on the show. He had just done that movie called um, White Hunter Black Heart. Oh, where he plays yes. John Houston. Mm-hmm. That had just been a couple years before. He had recently made like his fifth Dirty Harry movie. Deadpool. Which, yeah. To me, which is notable for a little clip I want to play here just because it amuses me. Uh, Deadpool is the one where um, you have very young baby Jim Carrey playing like a rock star. I remember who this. Who to uh, Welcome to the Jungle. Yep. And Liam Neeson, before he was famous, playing Whoa. music video director. I just want to play a tiny clip of that because this is where people, this is how people thought of Clint Eastwood's career at this moment. And what the hell is that supposed to mean? It means a director with talent would have the guts to shoot something original instead of ripping off old movies like The Exorcist. It's not a ripoff. It's a homage. Stupid. Oh, I remember this. I never knew that was Liam Neeson, though. Uh, this is like my first introduction to Dirty Harry was the Deadpool. Uh, for me, as a kid, I was like, this movie is the best. I loved it. I loved it. I thought it was so cool. I mean, it is kind of awesome. It yeah. is kind of awesome, but it wasn't like, I'm going to give Eastwood the actor no. the Oscars. He was sort of a joke. I mean, when Clint Eastwood like swept the Oscars for Unforgiven, he had not been to the Oscars since 1973. And you oh. know why? Well, he said some pretty crazy things about it. <laughs> this is the story. Clint Eastwood in 1973, he was at the Oscars. He wasn't supposed to be a presenter, but Charlton Heston had a flat tire. So he got called up to help introduce the Oscars. And he bombed so bad that he was like, I'm not coming back to the Oscars unless I'm nominated. And he did not come back until he won. So Heston is supposed to say something uh, about uh, something biblical here. (laughs) 
referring to him playing Moses, and he says, when I brought the tablets down from the mountain, Cecil B. DeMille research staff assured me that they would be only Ten Commandments. See, these people were wrong. There are eleven commandments. The eleventh commandment comes from the federal communication system, so spoke the Commission. Thou shalt have full disclosure. Come on, flip the card, man. <laughs> this isn't my bag, I'll tell you. <laughs> How awkward is that? And then oh, Charles I Chen didn't Hesson. think he was bad at all. I think, like, I feel like he made, like, I've seen people bum. Like, he feels like he's owning it. First of all, the fact that there was nobody going, like, let's rewrite something for Clint Eastwood. They just gave him Charlton Heston's lines. Like, I think that was, like, if I if I was to bomb like that, I would take that as a win. I mean, he's the audience <laughs> is on his side. It's not icky. It's not uncomfortable. I, I don't know. I'm on his side on that. Oh, he was so bad that Charlton Heston ends up making it to the theater while he's still up there and just taking over from him at the podium. Oh. And Clint Eastwood leaves and does not come back until he wins Best Picture. Well, I thought the reason why Clint Eastwood never uh, got a nomination was because he said something like this. He goes, uh, I had never be in the running because first of all, I'm not Jewish. Secondly, I make too much money. And thirdly, and most importantly, because I don't give a fuck. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so like, it didn't seem like he was kissing anyone's ass. I will say this about Clint Eastwood's <laughs> persona though, of not kissing anybody's ass. Yeah. There's kind of this like story behind the scenes about how good Clint Eastwood was at like playing this like double faced game with the press or with like his whole persona he's one of those people who has that mythology kind of like hackman like oh wow if you interview clint it's such an honor he doesn't like to talk to people you know he's a he's a lone man whenever he would give interviews um uh, like quotes about getting nominations he'd be like well we'll see what happens i'm just here for the work you know the same thing he always does but behind the scenes clint is a dude who would like call up critics he liked and be like hey man that was really great and like butter up different critics oh, wow. he was very tactical he like befriended all of these major critics in like the 80s, 90s by like, you wrote me a good review. Why don't I fly you out to like come here and like this film festival? So he really had like laid this groundwork where when he made a film that was at all good and was at all seeming like it was questioning his mythology, they were like this man and they all just rallied behind him. It was the story they wanted to root for. Wow, that's really, that's a really interesting idea because Clint Eastwood in many respects is a person who garners a lot of respect for where they stand in Hollywood. I mean, the fact that he's 88 years old, and regardless of what you think of The Mule, uh, is it's impressive that he is still making film. He I made mean, two films this year. He yeah. made a movie called The 1517 to Paris, yeah. where a bunch of kids like eat a bunch of gelato. Uh, <laughs> I auditioned for that. You uh, did? I did, As yeah. the gelato? Uh, as the gelato. And apparently I was too creamy. <laughs> uh, you know, he, in many respects, is like a Martin Scorsese or Woody Allen, regardless of Woody Allen's issues, of someone who is still being very creative into an older age. And it's something that we don't really see that much in Hollywood. Going back to what you said about where he was in his career, I'm looking at his, you know, his IMDb, and it's, you're right, like, we're looking at films like The Deadpool, Pink Cadillac, another movie that I really enjoyed with uh, Bernadette Peters, White Hunter, Black Heart, The Rookie, and then comes Unforgiven, and then comes In the Line of Fire, and A Perfect World, and Bridges of Madison County. And then we go into, you know, the million dollar baby and Gran Torino. It's like it really it changes everything. everything. Um, You know, and I think in a in a interesting way, you talked about this before we played that clip. 
he is commenting on his career. This film not written for him to, it's not like, I think it spoke to him because in many respects, he was able not only to close the door on the Western, but he was able to close the door on a certain part of his career. Here's actually Clint Eastwood talking about Unforgiven and and where it kind of stands in the pantheon of Westerns. This story, it seemed like, was the one I wanted to tell at that particular time in my life. Yeah, it's great that the romanticism that Ford brought and Hawks and all of them brought and the, and the wonderful cattle drives uh, in Red River and, and, the, and the great Anthony Mann um, uh, westerns that Jimmy Stewart did. But this one uh, was, was a chance to just put a, my stamp on what I felt about it. In, in reality, like you say, it is a, it is a crock. It, 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 it is a myth. And I think that that attitude then starts to imbue all of his choices. Going back to the film that you just talked about, the, where I was going to play Gelato, uh, you know, he casts real soldiers, the people who were actually in the incident. I think you see this like striving for like a verite in tone. You know, Million Dollar Baby is a depressing movie. He goes darker. He goes more real. He deglamorizes the Hollywood film, I think. I didn't see The Mule. But I feel like everything just kind of has like a little bit of a darker weight. Like it's not like the old dirty hairy version of him. And I think everyone wants to see it. I think when people thought like, oh, Grant Torino, who's going to go and do it? It's like it's like the dude bro version of what we talked about with like uh, uh, Karen Kusama, who directed yeah, Destroyer, Destroyer, and what Lynn Ramsey did in like You Were Never Really Here. It's like adding like a, a little bit of like a dramatic weight to it. It's, but it's like through his eyes and everything that we know of Clint Eastwood. I don't know. It's just interesting that he... I think is calling out the bullshit of, of Hollywood. Like everything after this movie is rejection of traditional Hollywood. It's true. And I will say like, I 100% do not feel at all guilty about taking the piss out of his films, but I do respect his discipline. To me, those are two separate channels of appreciation or criticism for what he does. I wonder how much of his de-glamorization of the West comes from the fact that he was one of those people who was on John Wayne's speed dial where John Wayne was like, when he made, when uh, Clint made high plains drifter, John Wayne wrote him a letter and he was like, that isn't what the West was about. That isn't our American people who settled this country. And I wonder if like there's a touch of Clint Eastwood being like, you can't tell me about America. You weren't even there either. Like we're both just making this up. Well, and you know what's kind of great about Clint Eastwood is he subverts the tropes of the Western right away in the beginning by creating the more violent Western. Like so John Wayne is doing these films where you can't show, you know, people getting shot on camera. He goes to Italy to work with Leone. Leone doesn't know these rules. So he's showing blood. He's showing people get shot at point blank range. And Clint Eastwood's like, I knew these rules. And I just didn't tell him because I thought it would be more fun. So here he is first subverting it in a way that we heard from John Wayne last week. You know, violence, if it's not dignified, it's not good. So first of all, he blows up the Western just by like introducing violence. And then that character kind of carries over into Dirty Harry. And then he kind of wraps it all up at the end. You know, uh, he kind of reinvents the Western twice. Yeah, which I think would really surprise Sergio Leone himself. I mean, like, Leone said this about Clint Eastwood. He said that he has two expressions, with or without a hat. (laughs) So the idea that he would go forth and reshape the genre and reshape the genre and reshape the genre. You know, I was playing this game when I was re-watching some of uh, this movie where I was like, oh, I could imagine... Keanu Reeves giving this exact same line delivery Mm -hmm. for most of everything that Clint Eastwood does in the film, you know, because he doesn't tend to 
put any sort of emotion into his words. He just kind of corrects the volume a little bit. Right. But that's also sort of who he is. Like, I mean, this is John Wick. Again, we talk about the, you know, these these movies that are doing very well for us. The Takens and John Wicks are plays on traditional Western things. And I, I would argue, you know, without the karate, there is a lot of similarities between John Wick and William Money. You know, to a certain degree. It's like, I just want a guy who's living in this house. I'm done. I'm so done that I've buried my guns under cement. I got a dead wife. Yeah. No, I mean, don't, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that you can see a direct line to. True. But if you will forgive me, I do just want to play like at least a snippet of a Clint monologue to kind of refresh ourselves as to how he gives lines in this film. Okay. Well, you know, Will. I hate to say him, Ned. Claudia, she straightened me up, cleared me of drinking whiskey and all. Just because we're going on this killing, that don't mean I'm going to go back to being the way I was. I just need the money. Get a new start for them youngsters. Yeah. Ned, you remember that drover I shot through the mouth and his teeth came out the back of his head? Yeah. I think about him now and again. He didn't do anything to deserve to get shot. At least nothing I could remember when I sobered up. I mean, I just feel like there's more depth and musicality in any one of Morgan Freeman's groans than there is in this entire speech that he gives. Uh, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I remember that monologue from the film before you played it. Like, I remember those specifics. So it's, it's really well written. He delivers it very plainly. But I think it speaks to something, again, going back to the films that he creates from here on forward – this is a beautiful movie. It's nowhere near as majestic as The Searchers. The vistas are simple, but they are beautiful. And I feel like there's something about his performance style that is the same. There's nothing showy about him. Well, it's a little Marlboro Man. Yes. Like, I think a lot of the images in here are very Marlboro Man ad. You know, just yeah. like silhouetted cowboy orange sunset. Yeah, I mean, it, it is the quintessential macho stereotype. If John Wayne was that to the 60s, I think that he is that to the 70s. And and I would argue that, you know, one of the things that we don't really have in the, uh, or in the aughts, or in the teens, and the teens, and the end, and the aughts, is this new version of it. At a certain point, I think it's Harrison Ford. I think you can make a case that it's Chris Pratt, but Chris Pratt has not the same kind of like he's I mean, a manly, Keanu. yeah. It's Keanu. You think Keanu is that guy? A little bit. I think Keanu doesn't trust himself to emote more. And it is true that like Clint, his own characters are basically like how he even is as a director, as the man in charge. Like he doesn't go action. He just goes, whenever you're ready. And let's just talk about the fact that he's a very productive filmmaker. This movie came in in 39 days, right? He shot this movie under budget and it came in under time. He is just working hard out there. Which I respect that because part of how Clint Eastwood has figured out how to be his own lone cowboy in Hollywood is every movie he makes is pretty cheap and he does it fast and he's not a pain in the ass. So they're like, go on. You basically make your money back every single time. You can do what you want. And I respect that he has figured out a way to have freedom in restriction. Mm -hmm. I think that's really smart. Um... I wonder, because I'm not an actor, like when I hear that he only does one or two takes for a, for a scene, I'd be like, 
what if I really screwed it up? What if I could do better? Do I want to do more takes? And that's because I, I don't know how it would be. Well, let's actually hear from one of the actors in the film. He played W.W. W. Beauchamp. He's also just a veteran actor who's been in so many fantastic films, including True Romance and Family Man, and most recently, uh, The Last Tycoon, the TV series about Louis B. Mayer. Uh, please welcome Saul Rubinick. Now, Saul, um, I wanted to ask you, first of all, thank you for being here. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about this movie. What was the audition process like for this film? There are some things about this project that were very unusual in my career, and they remain so even though this was 26 years ago. When I uh, got the role, I, it was an early version of self-tape. I had a, a camera, and I did a self-tape audition. I, mean, I was working on Man Trouble with Jack Nicholson at the time, and he knew Clint, and he said, I hear you're going to, you know, audition for Clint for a new movie. I, he said, do do more than is required. I know Clint, do more <laughs> than is required. I said, okay, thanks for the advice, but when's the last time you ever had to audition for anything? 50 years ago? You know, I think I know more about auditioning than you do. It was very funny. But I did take his advice, and I did more than was required for that audition. I didn't go into a casting office, you know, with fluorescent light and having 10 minutes and they have to be done. I did my own tape, and I was cast very, very quickly. And I remember being flown out to L.A. to meet for costume fitting and getting fitted for cowboy boots, which was a first for me. <laughs> kind of exciting. I still have those boots. Oh, wow. And they were fitted for me, and it was really kind of exciting. <laughs> and I met Clint for the first time, which was also very exciting. Yeah. And I said, listen, i got to ask you. I mean, as far as I know, you don't meet actors. Everybody is on tape. And he said, yeah. And I said, why? You're an actor yourself. I mean, why wouldn't you want to meet actors? And he said, this is the sweetest thing. He said, I just, I just be terrible at saying no to people. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, the person I met who I was expecting to meet was a cop. Right. But who I met had the soul of a jazz musician, really, I think. Uh, a, a much, um, as if, you know, you know, I really met somebody who was a collaborator and, and really, but I didn't know how much of a collaborator. You know, there's this myth about Clint Eastwood being, or so there's this, always a story of Clint Eastwood being like, he only does two takes. There was no, there was no direction of actors. And I'll give you an example of this. You know, we had a base camp. You couldn't get up to the town. You couldn't go up to the town unless you went by horse or, or walked or went by wagon. It had to be authentic. Or they didn't want tire tracks or anything like that up in the town. So the base camp was below the hill, and then you walked up the hill to where the town was built. And one of the first things that happened to me was I said, listen, I, I want to talk to you before we, before we shoot about the character. And he said, uh-huh. I said, you know, I don't have any lines at the beginning. I'm just traveling with English Bob. But the way it's written in the script, at least the stage directions, are that I'm very, a very, very nervous kind of, you know, um, character. He said, uh-huh. And I said, I, I, don't, I don't think that's right. My demeanor should be very cocky, you know. I don't know fuck all about the West, and I'm with a gunslinger uh, who I'm writing about, and I should know fuck all. So you see a major contrast when there's guns pointed at me, you know? Yeah. And, and he said, uh-huh, and, and you're telling me all this because... <laughs> I said, because you're the director, and I'm asking if it's okay with you if I change what seems to be written in the stage directions. And he said, oh, well, let me make this clear to you and you'll get to know me. You're in charge, Saul, of the department called W.W. Beauchamp. If I knew how to play this role, I probably wouldn't need to hire you. Let me put it this way. When we're shooting, if you do something I don't understand, I'll be sure to let you know. 
Okay, I mean, there's a lot of myths about Clint, the director, or maybe they're true, like that he is a guy who takes like one take, two takes, he's very quick. In fact, there was a couple, there was one very particular incident that has to do with directing actors that I'd never before seen and haven't seen since. We're in the shootout scene in the bar at the end. Right. And uh, the camera is on sticks behind Clint's shotgun and him, and it's on... It's on um, Gene Hackman as the sheriff. And, and Gene Hackman knows he's about to be shot, and he says, after you know, he shoots me, shoot him down like the dog that he is to his deputies. But it's some, a line, right. something like that. And the next thing that happens is that Clint pulls the trigger. And the next thing that happens is it clicks. It doesn't shoot the cartridge. And Gene Hackman's line is, misfire, kill the son of a bitch, or shoot the son of a bitch, something like that, right? Misfire, yeah. kill the son of a bitch. And at that point, it was a cut because now we were going to shoot a lot of different action stuff, right? Yeah. So that was on Gene Hackman over, over Clint's barrel, and, and he clicks and misfire, kills son of a bitch. Okay, cut. Gene, I wonder, and now, <laughs> been working together for six, seven, eight weeks, yeah. and I doubt if he directed him once. So if he'd asked Gene, I wonder if you'd mind painting yourself blue and standing on your head and spinning nickels, he probably would have done it. Right. You know, because... Because he did encourage you, and he, I mean, he might have said he didn't understand something, but I, really specifically directing actors in a certain way to act a certain way I never saw. So here he is about to give Gene a direction. You could have heard a pin drop. He said, just sighed like that, and Gene went, what? Anything, what? Yeah. He said, I kind of would like to get my scissors in there. That was the phrase. Right. And I understood it, and Gene understood it. Right. I knew what he meant. And Gene did. He said, oh, I, I get it. You want, you want a beat. He, yeah. wanted his, he wanted an edit point, and he wanted a beat. He went click, and then Gene was right on top of that click saying, misfire, kill the son of a bitch, and he wanted a beat before that. Right. And Gene said, no problem. You want a beat. And Clint nodded, if it's okay. He said, absolutely. Do it again. And usually, uh, there's just misinformation about Clint Eastwood to take Clint. It's not right. that he only shoots two takes. Two good takes. Right. He's got two good takes, one good one and an alternate that's good, then he'll move on. He doesn't want to jerk off and do many different versions of it. And he, now we're doing take three, and he, and he does it again because he's asked Gene to do that. And as soon as he clicks, Gene goes, Misfire, oh, shit, damn, sorry, Clint, I'll, I'll get it next time. And we did it again and again. Gene immediately said, Misfire, fuck. Right, right. Uh, and, and I remember at that point, Clint said, wait, uh, hang on a sec. Um, I think everybody take 10 minutes or so. I, I got I to gotta rethink something here. Is there anything I can do? now, Gene, it's not really your problem here. Let me just figure something out. And I stuck around and I watched. And what he did was he had them take the camera off the sticks and put it on a short three-foot track. And he spoke to the dolly grip about when, presumably, I thought, when to move the camera, when to move the thing on a little short foot, little short move. Everybody got called back in. <laughs> and Gene, of course, immediately saw that the camera was now on a dolly or on a track. Right. And on a, a three-foot track. He just looked at it. He looked up at Clint and said, Clint just said, yeah, just do what comes naturally. He said, okay. And as soon as he clicked the barrel, there was a quick push in from the dolly grip, right? Yeah. Gene was a film actor, and he knew enough to wait. He saw it was a short track, and he knew to wait that beat until the camera finished its movement, which took about a second and a half. Right. 
maybe less. And then he said his line. Okay, so what's the lesson here? The lesson is that a director changed his shot in order to accommodate the instincts of an actor. Which is pretty... Something I had not seen before and have rarely seen since. I had heard one story, and I don't know if you remember this at all, but I guess the day that uh, Gene Hackman had come in, he had sat down or having dinner with uh, Clint Eastwood, and they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to shoot this scene just to kind of get your feet wet. And then they found out it was going to rain. And uh, Yeah, we shot, it was rain, the scene in the jail with me and him, and, and um, the scene with him and, him and me and Richard Harris, yeah. that huge scene, yeah. was weather cover. So that was this right out of the gate. You guys all were kind of thrown right into the uh, into the fire. Oh yeah, and he and he shot the rehearsal, as I recall. Wow! And I think the master is the rehearsal. I mean, the me coming up, the idea of me coming up with that gun. For right. example, I can tell you, me putting that gun in the position that I put it in, and leaning away from it and holding the gun out. That was during the take that I came up with that. That's really, I mean, it's amazing. And I think it what, just happened in the scene. And, and he liked that, like a jazz musician would. He likes mistakes. He likes things to happen. Like some people, like I hear, I don't know this is true, but I understand that Bob Dylan's recording sessions are like that. That doesn't want to do too many takes and likes some errors and likes things to happen, you yeah. know, accidentally. And Clint kind of had that jazz musician's feel for it. At least he did in this movie. And, and that that was weather cover. Uh, well, Saul, thank you so much for talking to us today. We really appreciate such it. Such a pleasure, and we're such a fan, and uh, thank you so much. Uh, it's a pleasure. This episode of Unspooled is brought to you by our homies at Focus On, a new podcast by Focus Features. You know Focus Features because they make some of the absolute best movies that exist right now. They are great. They make really smart, intelligent, high-end dramas, they are people who hit home runs over and over and over again. And what they are doing now is that they have launched a new podcast called Focus On, where they're going to talk about the stories behind the fo- the films that they're making. They recently have a new Ruth Bader Ginsburg film that's out. Yes. Um, called On the Basis of Sex. And so what they're doing is they're going to do, they're doing a whole episode of Focus On about the stories of that, looking at are men and women equal in the eyes of, consti- of the Constitution and really getting to the truth of the stories behind their films. I love this idea because I think a lot of times you see these films that are based in some sort of historical truth. And then you leave the theater wanting to know more. And this is kind of a great companion piece to enjoy the film that you just saw even more than you did. I love it. They've got Kristen Conger from Unladylike. She's hosting that episode, and she's going to trace the entire Equal Rights Amendment's 96-year history from women's suffrage to today. It's awesome. And if you want to know history about the other types of movies, they've got Mary Queen of Scots out right now. Oh, yeah. They have a whole episode of Focus on all about the trial of Mary Queen of Scots. See? We've seen it in tons of movies. This is what I need. I need it. It's the truth. It's the truth. So listen to Focus on right now on Apple Podcasts and get smarter about the movies you love. Well, you know, another way to get smart is by listening to our friends over at Homophilia. It's 2019. It's a brand new year, a fresh start. How about you make listening to Homophilia one of your New Year's resolutions? If you don't know what Homophilia is, it is a queer comedy party where hosts Dave Holmes and Matt McConkie grill LGBTQ celebrities on what they're loving and who they're loving. They have these hilarious uh, in-depth conversations about everything from their pop culture obsessions to deep talks about their personal experiences. They've had people like Jesse Tyler Ferguson on telling um, him about the time 
time that he tried to shoplift gay porn. Uh, Karamo Brown from Queer Eye talked about marriage and then how he actually proposed to his boyfriend weeks later. Even uh, Dan Savage, who I used to love reading uh, back. I still love reading. I mean, he's great. He's one of the best writers on the planet. Uh, He gives some sex and love advice uh, and breaks down being monogamish. Uh, It's such a great, fun show from a really unique perspective. So check out Homophilia now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, back to the show. All right, this movie is ranked uh, number 68 on the new AFI list, but it was 98 on the original AFI list. It's kind of doing the same thing that we saw with The Searchers, something that in uh, the original list, it's moved up a lot. I believe that 68 is about right. I think this movie does feel important uh, to me. Do you disagree? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I am running into that same issue of, we're putting in the subversions of the genre and not the genre. Because one thing I didn't notice, and I actually flubbed on this when we were talking about um, The Searchers, is I just assumed that Stagecoach was on our AFI list because it was on the original yeah. AFI list and because it's freaking Stagecoach. Stagecoach is not on the list anymore. So I thought we were going to watch like a real classic purist, not not HUAC, not communist, yeah. not any subtext Western. And we aren't. Like we basically have a list that's mostly subversions. And I think this film is oh I think this film is fine. Like if right. somebody really, really loves this movie, I'm not going to say that you, you don't, don't believe it belongs on the hundred best films of all time. I could live without it. So so far, you know, you would put Stagecoach over every film that we watched. High Noon, The Searchers, and Unforgiven, every Western, I should say. Totally. I'm not as familiar with the genre of Westerns that I can definitively say, you know, what Western belongs. But I will say this movie has some amazing performances, and I think it does a really great job of being incredibly entertaining, making a statement about something that is universal, you know, which is violence. And I think it was, you know, done at a time where, to a certain, you know, extent, you know, we're commenting on the LA riots. I think we're commenting on violence in the cinema. And it does so in a really graceful way that doesn't feel over the top. And you can walk away like you did going like, I'm kind of rooting for Gene Hackman, you know, and I can come away and go, I'm rooting for Clint Eastwood. Or, you know, someone else can come away and go like, yeah, Francis Fisher was right. Like we, uh, you can pick who you like. It really works for me. Um, you know, 68 right now, I'm not arguing it. I, 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 I like it at 68. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is what's on people's minds when it comes out, when they get best picture is that 1992 had just been named the year of the woman. Oh, wow. It's actually really fascinating because we're basically living in a, the exact same parallel moment. You know, 91 was Anita Hill. Mm-hmm. 92 was the year of the woman because it was this year that suddenly like a record number of women were elected to the House. 47 women wow. were elected to the House. And the Senate went from having two women to having six women, including Diane Feinstein. So everybody was like 1992 year of the woman. I think they're putting in context that this is a movie where the women put the film into motion. And even Clint Eastwood himself acknowledged it right when he went up and got his best picture statuette. In the, in the year of the woman, uh, the greatest woman on the planet is here tonight. That's my mother, Ruth. <laughs> By the way, part of the reason he gave his mother, Ruth, a shout out is because he had put her in like a big heavy dress and made her walk around as an extra. And then he cut her out of the film. <laughs> I was going to say, he didn't want to thank that woman who read the script for him, though. She did not get anything. She did not get anything. 
Frances Fisher, though, they were dating. She, I think, is pregnant at this Oscars with oh, wow. um, Francesca Fisher. So in the year of the woman, we have kind of a traditional thing that Hollywood does, which is a direct uh, revolt against it. I mean, this is not a film that should be anywhere near the year of the woman. I, I think that Frances Fisher's character is a very strong woman, and I think I really liked her performance, but it's, you know, it, it, she really is the only woman who speaks in this film. I mean, I like that it screws with my head that Gene Hackman, who I do believe is the good guy-ish in the movie, ish, 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 as far as there is yeah. any good, as there is no good, everybody is great. Mm-hmm. I do like that I also kind of hate him for, for thinking that women are horses. And I'm with Frances Fisher when she screams this. Just because we let them smelly fools ride us like horses don't mean we gotta let them brand us like horses. Maybe we ain't nothing but whores, but we, by God, we ain't horses. You know, and it's not, maybe not the most uplifting maxim for the year of women, but I respect her character a lot in here. I by the way, um, somebody came to this at, uh, you know, sort of just observing, and they noticed that, like, Clint Eastwood was hanging out with Francis, and he tended to call her Bad Francis, like that was his loving nickname for her. Uh-huh. Um, and in front of this journalist, he told her not to drink this milk that she was holding in front of her, because then she would become Big Bad Fran. <laughs> I'm just saying that happened. (laughs) You know, we talked a little bit earlier about the kind of rivalry between uh, John Wayne and Clint Eastwood and, you know, even the fact that John Wayne called Clint Eastwood. Uh, Do you think that calling that Richard Harris character, who is a real essentially buffoon, but, you know, uh, was kind of a dig at John Wayne because John Wayne was the Duke. And then that is the Duke of death. Is, Is there like maybe a little subtle like fuck you? I mean, it seems like it can't be an accident, right? Right. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think it's an accident that Clint Eastwood's character's name is William, Gene Hackman's name is Bill, which is also William. Oh, yeah. They have the same name. It's like the Martha of 1992. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but I I, I do like it. It means Please something. Yeah. Tell us online. What, have we, what, have, what, have, what haven't we got? I mean, and now let's hear maybe from some people who didn't want to get behind a Clint Eastwood on this big comeback train here? Any negative reviews of this film? You know, most people really, really, really like this film. Maybe because Clint Eastwood would call them if uh, they didn't. Um, but here is one from Hal Henson of the Washington Post. A prominent New York critic once declared Clint Eastwood, quote, the last serious man in Hollywood. And Eastwood must have remembered it, too, because his new Western, Unforgiven, is the kind of movie you make when you start to take this kind of praise to heart. He goes on to kind of question this whole redemption arc that money goes on because, like, money, he says, is acting as though it's Charles Manson coming out of retirement. But that really all we ever get in this film is, like, his word for it. And you don't really see Mm. anything about it. It doesn't actually feel proven. He says that if Eastwood had any emotional depth as an actor, the character's anguish might come through. But Eastwood has little more than a paint-by-numbers approach to acting. In interviews, Eastwood has said that perhaps this movie is the last in which he will appear as an actor. And it wouldn't be a bad way for him to bow out. Eastwood is a serious man, all right, but unfortunately, seriousness without an equal portion of talent is a mixed blessing. Ooh, that's a pretty rough review, but I did think about something when you read that, which was like, huh, I wonder if it wasn't Clint Eastwood if this movie is as good. I think it actually would be, though. I mean, hmm. I mean, I think if this movie starred like Kurt Russell or something, or right. who would be old enough to, th- uh, if this movie starred... Why if you do it right that? now, if you're going to yeah. do it right now. I mean, because Kurt Russell just did his Western. He was fantastic in that then that Quentin Tarantino movie, I thought. I think that it would not get any awards. I think it would not nearly get this many awards. I think we're always 
excited when the guy who was making like movies with orangutans is like, I am intelligent. Right. Okay. And also he was like in that review, you know, Hal Hansen is basically saying that in that whole interview cycle, Eastwood was pulling the Stallone of like, oh, I'm not going to do this again. Oh, I'll never do this again. Right. Oh, it's my final bow. Oh, no, really. And that was 1992. He's having orgies in films today. <laughs> um, well, I don't know. Let's see if, if it's the first time, if you're listening to the podcast, it was the first time you saw the film uh, and your familiarity with Clint Eastwood is a little bit less. Do you, do you feel like this movie worked for you? I'm curious to see what people's response will be about that because I really, it really worked for me. I don't know. This, this watch really connected. Amy, is there Simpsons? No. There is no wow. Simpsons. I couldn't find a Simpsons. I did find a Simpsons that references Clint Eastwood himself, but it's like going back to his Leone Westerns. Right. And I think it actually is an interesting fit with everything we talked about in this episode, because to set the stage, Homer and Bart and Marge and Lisa are watching a Western. And um, Bart and Homer are hoping for like a violent Western. And Lisa and Marge are like totally enchanted that it's a musical. And the boys are bummed out that they're not getting the violent Western they have been promised. Gonna paint a wagon, gonna paint it good. We ain't bragging, we're gonna coat that wood. <laughs> They're singing! They're singing, Marge! Why aren't they killing each other? Yeah, their guns are right there. Wait, wait, wait. Here comes Lee Marvin. <laughs> <laughs> Although, you know what I did also pull for you, Paul? What? This is my own special torture. I am a torturous maniac. Please, not another rapping. Is this a rapping Clint Eastwood? It is. Here you go. What's up, Kong F? You scream like a girl and got moves like Jagger, but I'll rip through your ass faster than a poo-poo platter. You're in the gym too much, Ringo, perfecting kicks. You should spend more time matching your voice up to your lips. You don't belong to Frank. Oh, what is this? Bruce Make my iPod. Oh, stop, stop, stop. Bruce Lee versus Clint Eastwood. Epic rap battles of history. Oh, no, 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 no. No more rap battles. I don't want to see it. All right. Oh, come on. You wouldn't rather settle things with a rap battle than a gun? Yeah, if that was a traditional rap battle, that was terrible. Terrible, Amy. Um, Should we roll the die? We should. We got, ooh, it's a low one, number 95. 95. What's that? All right, let's see, just four above. Ben-Hur, oh, The Last Picture Show, which is a movie I've never seen. This is a classic American film. I don't even really know what it's about. Well, then that is a perfect setup for we should do another uh, call-in of what is it about. I love this idea. Um, You can give us a call at 747-666-5888. Two four. That's seven four seven six 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 five eight two four. With your answer, what is the last picture show about? Is it a horror? Is it a romance? I don't even know. We'll figure it all out together, uh, and we will see you next week uh, for the last picture show. This is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Eight nuts. (laughs) 
Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, Yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. Jesus. I mean, Jazos. (laughs) Ruler of the Eighth Circle. And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine bold, naturally aged Tillamook cheddar slices melting over a burger, eating thick-cut cheddar shreds straight from the bag. (sighs) It's nice to dream about cheese for a bit. Tillamook cheddar, extraordinary dairy. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.